what, the one time I got to pee, you guys sit down and stop talking right away? <laughs> Crying out loud. I thought I could count on you. So you may have heard that there's this um, ballot question. <laughs> there's a bunch of them that are controversial. One that's especially controversial is question six. That's the one about gay marriage. And in the news this week, we had settle down. I'm not, we're not going to, again, New Hope does not take any positions for or against political candidates, pending legislation or ballot initiatives. But this has been in the news. Some of you may be wondering just exactly what is going on and how we might want to think about that. That's not what the whole sermon is about either. So again, settle down. But there was a rally at a uh, church in Randallstown, not too far away from here, uh, that was uh, generating a bit of kerfuffle this week. At this, uh, one of my colleagues in the area read from Romans, specifically the end of the first chapter of Romans, where we read that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and and, and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. And what's more, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They make up new ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That even though they know God's righteous decree, and this is the part that the pastor said, even though they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but they approve of those who practice them. And what my colleague said, the argument he was making was that to vote for question six, to say that the state can recognize gay marriage is 
to approve of those who practice something that is deserving death. That's the argument that he made. This was not well received by some sectors. And Dan Rodericks, columnist for The Sun, host of an NPR talk show, wrote an incensed column in response to this. He said, uh, even before I saw this video, I'd been thinking about the arguments against question six and the idea that Christians would line up against it. By Christian, of course, I mean people whose religious beliefs are rooted in the teachings of the prophet Jesus of Nazareth and the New Testament, including the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Being Catholic, Roderick says, I mean, uh, I was deprived of full schooling in the Old Testament, Leviticus et al., but I never felt the need to reach much beyond the teachings of Christ to have a foundation in Christianity. As much as I enjoy readings from the gospel, I'm no scholar of the New Testament, nor with so much great literature still to read do I intend to spend a lot of time with Paul's epistle to the Romans. He says epistles to the Romans. There's only one, but I guess since he doesn't spend much time reading them, he doesn't know that. Frankly, Roderick says, I don't need to. I know in my bones what Jesus was about. I think most Christians can tell you that it's a pretty simple philosophy formed somewhere between the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and the Sermon on the Mount with all its hopeful and humane teachings about the poor, the hungry, the meek, the merciful, the persecuted, and the peacemakers. Jesus was about loving thy neighbor, and no Christian should ever need much more than that. I beg the pardon of anyone who has a more elaborate understanding of Jesus, the young Jewish progressive who was baptized and later crucified, leaving behind a legacy of spiritual lessons for mankind. I am a forgiving sort, and I'm happy to pardon anybody who is repentant. I don't hear much repentance here. I hear an argument that says, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I know it's true, so here we go. Let's back up again. Those of us who have been in the Roman series will remember this. What is Paul doing in Romans 1? What, what do we know about the second half, the first chapter of Romans? What is it? It's a setup. It's a setup. Paul, in the second half of the first chapter of Romans, is talking about how the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all this godlessness and wickedness. And this is a brief catalog of a much more extensive list of wicked practices that we find in books like, yes, Leviticus, Torah, and the Prophets, offer a great deal of exposition on this. God gave His law so that His people would know how to live and how to live well. And in fact, Torah does say that there are things that are deserving of death. Among them, teenage rebelliousness. One wonders how the race even survived. But yes, in Torah it says there's a whole range of sexual sins. And if you're really interested, you can get into just exactly uh, which ants you can and can't sleep with if you want to avoid the death penalty. But among those sexual sins that is considered worthy of the death penalty, in addition to your uncle, your aunt, your donkey, is a person of the same sex. This is not 
something that is uh, particularly remarkable. In fact, we could have trouble if it were wrong to say these things from a pulpit. Our good friends in the synagogues, the traditional ones, will read this passage of Leviticus every year, Parshat Achrei Mot, in the spring. That's what it says. And when Paul, in chapter 1 of Romans, says, we know, or they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, we know this too, right? They not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. He's writing to people who believe, yes, these things are wrong and they deserve death. They would have merited the death penalty in the ancient Israel. But, just because it's a setup doesn't mean what? It isn't true. Yes, this is true, but if we remember, this is a setup because Paul says in the very next verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, what does he say? You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You point a finger at someone else, you've got three pointing right back at you, Paul says. You're right, Paul says, to think that those wicked people have a problem. But guess what? You're part of those wicked people. So now what are you going to do? This is a problem that requires a solution much greater than a good example of somebody who did some nice things. And again, I just I want to recognize there are people who believe that if the Bible says that those who continue not only continue to do these things but approve of those who practice them, there are people who believe that since the Bible says we shouldn't be approving of those who practice them, these things that deserve death, then to pass a law that says it's legal for gay people to marry each other is approving of that. And we're not supposed to do that, so we should vote against it. There are also people who believe that there are a lot of things that are legal, and just because something's legal doesn't mean you approve of it. We have somebody here wearing a Steelers jersey. I'll leave it at that. Again, New Hope does not take a position for or against this or any other ballot measure. What is going on here is so much bigger. And the argument Paul is making in Romans is about so much more than sexual immorality, even though that has something to do with why somebody might be interested in it. He's telling a story about a Jesus who, incidentally, in that Sermon on the Mount that Dan Rodericks likes so much, says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill Torah, in fact, not one jot or tittle of it will pass away, including the stuff about things being worthy of death until heaven and earth pass away. Jesus would be horrified at the idea that somebody would separate him from what Torah had taught because he upheld it. I don't think Jesus would be terribly impressed by somebody who said, I know in my bones what Jesus was about, but didn't care 
to know about what the people who knew him best and were closest to him said about what Jesus was about. There is, in fact, in the history of theology, this depressing tendency for people to say, well, we don't know much about Jesus, and then if we kind of look back in history and we determine what we can what we think is reliable and what we think isn't reliable, and if we discern that, then what you end up with is a Jesus who looks a lot like you on a good day. And our problem is too big to be dealt with by somebody who just looks like us on a good day. Amen? Our problem, Paul lays out in our passage Chapter 5 of Romans, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death came to all men because all sinned, or before Torah was given, sin was in the world, sin isn't taken into account, absent Torah, but nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam up to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command like Adam did. But Adam was, of course, a pattern of the one to come. And I think you all were suspecting that at some point in this three-sermon series on this passage, we would get to Jesus, and we're doing that. The gift, Paul says, isn't like the trespass. The many, if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace And the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. And again, the gift of God isn't like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift, the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more? Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Torah was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This trespass, brought death, brought the right, righteous judgment. It brought just condemnation. And this was the story at the beginning of Genesis, and this was the story that was given in the history of God's people, Israel. Choose life, God said to his people. But they chose death. They were warned that if they disobeyed the righteous commands of Torah, if they followed after the false gods of their neighbors, if they decided that they knew in their bones what God was about and that they would 
operate according to their understanding of who gave a good example, it would not turn out well, and it did not turn out well. The problem is a grave one. And so that's why it's so important that we hear what Paul says here when he's talking about Adam and about Christ. The other place, other than Romans 5, where Paul talks about Adam is in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He goes on to say, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual didn't come first, but the natural. After that, the spiritual. first man was of the dusty earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the man from heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. The first Adam, at best, became a living being. He also became a being who brought death through sin. But the last Adam wasn't just a living being. He was a life-giving spirit. And what we need when we are under a sentence of death is not just someone who's alive and is in the same pickle we're in. What we need is someone who can give life. Someone who, in fact, by His resurrection, didn't just provide a good moral example that a decent person might choose to follow, if so inclined, but someone who in His resurrection defeated that last enemy to be destroyed. Someone who, by his resurrection, was vindicated in all that he said and did. Someone who himself is able to give life. A good example is not able by one righteous action to bring justification that brings life for us. I mean, there are people who are admirable. But just being admirable, just living well, just saying some things that seem wise, even if they are wise, doesn't affect an atoning sacrifice. You can't say, as Paul does, of somebody who was just a young Jewish progressive who left behind a legacy of spiritual lessons for mankind. 
You can't say of that person that through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. That kind of justification, that kind of righteousness, that kind of rectification, setting things that are wrong to right, that doesn't happen just by a good moral exemplar. For that, you need a real deal Savior. And the Jesus that we have in the New Testament, thanks be to God, the real Jesus is not just someone who looks like us on a good day. He's not a false God that we make in our image. He is the incarnate Lord of the universe, taken on flesh, dwelling among us, dying an atoning death for our sins, and raised to life for our justification so that one day we will have that same resurrection from the dead. This is a much bigger story than the pamphlet some people would like to make it. This is a cosmic story. And it's a story that is worth living. And that's why we tell this story, this whole story, this real deal story about a real deal Savior who actually is able to die an atoning death for us, who by that one righteous action can bring justification, bringing life to all of us. You never go up against a Sicilian when death is on the line. You never go up against the God of the universe when life is on the line. And so when we take communion, as we're about to do, we are standing with 2,000 years of Jesus' followers who affirm in this bizarre ritual, this eating of his body and blood, which would be absolutely nonsensical if there weren't something really significant that we're remembering. We affirm that we are under the righteous judgment of a righteous God that with Adam we sin, we justly face condemnation, but that thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ, our sin is forgiven and we will one day know in full what we know now in part, the reality of resurrected life in Him. So will you stand with me as we recite the creed together. After that, I'll invite you to come forward, take the elements and bring them back to your seats. The red is wine and the white is grape juice. The bread is unleavened. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, 
eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.